0: Cornucopia Radio presents.
1: It was a scorching hot August bank holiday weekend in 1948. Joan Woodhouse, a young, single, intelligent, and deeply religious librarian, left her lodgings in London. Her intention to travel by train to visit her family home in Barnsley, South Yorkshire. She never arrived. More than a week later, on the afternoon of Tuesday, August 10th, Joan's partially clothed body was found in Arundel Park, West Sussex. She had been raped and strangled. In a treasured photograph album which captured many fond memories, Joan's aunts wrote this emotional goodbye Our beloved, you were so lovely and beautiful in your life, so brave. So unassuming in purpose, so true to your ideals, so full of humour and wisdom, but yet so childlike in your utter simplicity and joy in things lovely and of good report, so tender in your love and understanding, we could not convey to others even the shadow of what you were. And when you left us, you took with you the better part of us, so, how did Joan come to be in Arundel Park in the southeast of England? And who was responsible for her murder? Join the True Crime Investigators UK as they try to uncover the answers. But who are they? John was a police officer for 30 years, working locally and nationally as a detective. Sally was also a police officer for 12 years and then retrained as a lawyer and practised in criminal law. Now they are both retired and review cases of interest, some solved, some undetected. Throughout this series, they will discuss the cases they are reviewing and interview relevant parties, including police officers, suspects, witnesses and experts.
2: Welcome back, everybody, and thank you for joining us again. We really appreciate all of you staying subscribed to the show as we've researched and recorded this our new investigation. I think, John, it'll be really helpful by explaining how we first came to this case.
3: Yes, the nice thing is that as the podcasts have been listened to, we've been contacted by people who are appreciative of what we've done and suggesting areas that we can look at. One person in particular, Martin Knight, he emailed us initially and he's the author of a book, Justice for Joan, the Arundel murder. A murder that we weren't aware of until Martin contacted us. No, that's us. right. He asked if we would revisit the Joan Woodhouse murder case. It was undetected and still is undetected and therefore, of course, it was of interest from Martin's point of view, if we could further the investigation and come up with any areas that hadn't been explored at the time he'd written his book. And at first, we were a bit sort of sceptical, weren't we, Sally, because of the, the murder was in 1948.
2: Because, yeah, yeah, the age of the case.
3: And our podcast, we try and do an investigation, i.e. we, we interview people and or revisit people who were involved in the case. And on first sight, a 1948 case is going back a long time. And we weren't sure whether we would be able to do what we normally do and how we want to do our podcast. But we thought we'd have a look further. And we contacted uh, Martin. And we did take on the investigation, didn't we, after Yeah, I think a while.
2: Uh, what made us look at it with an open eye was that Martin made us aware of a YouTube video that he'd done the video was of him opening a case and he explained that the case had been given to him by the victim's friend, Lena Bamber. She was a very good friend of Joan Woodhouse. And as he was flicking through lots and lots of papers in this little brown case, I just saw an address on on one of the letters and I did a freeze frame on the television and I saw this address of Derby Road, Hena. And that's a real coincidence because in the 1980s, I used to live on Derby Road at Hena. So then we had the chat about who'd have thought that a young woman originally from Barnsley, then living in London, who was murdered in West Sussex, had this Hena-Derbyshire connection. So, I think I'd say it was an itch that we had to scratch.
3: I think that sums it up, doesn't it? We were sort of hooked after we'd looked at it initially and decided that although we had reservations, we would certainly go and do our best to see if we could help.
2: Yeah, and just to look at the case very, very broad terms, as we've heard, Joan was a librarian living and working in London, but originally she was from South Yorkshire and actually her dad was still living in South Yorkshire in Barnsley, as a matter of fact. And on the weekend of the August bank holiday, which we normally think of the August bank holidays at the end of August. In 1948, it was at the beginning of August. So on that weekend, she was due to visit her dad up in Barnsley. Now, for some reason, she didn't go to Barnsley. She ended up in Arundel in West Sussex and her body was found by a local man. And despite investigations by the police and numerous enquiries, nobody was ever convicted of the murder of Joan Woodhouse. And therefore, as you say, John, this case remains unsolved all these years later.
3: Because we're interested, you know, we always try and work logically like a police investigation would be you know we, we start with the evidence and work work on from there and I think the first person we should have a talk to is the man who wrote the book Martin Knight you know he would have visited the scene of the murder himself get a feel of what the, the murder case is all about and what the inquiries were done and led to and that more interestingly initially is how did he actually get involved in this case why did he take it on So I think the first port of call is to contact Martin and have a word with him.
2: Martin, how did you come to the Joan Woodhouse murder case? Well, it started many,
0: many years ago. It was in the the late 1970s. In those days, I commuted to London. And in those days, everyone either read a book or read a newspaper rather than sat there with headphones on. And a book that was all the rage was called 40 Years of Murder by the former Home Office pathologist, Dr. Keith Simpson. And I saw other people reading it. I thought, oh, I'll, I'll get this book. And it was, you know, basically um, a catalogue of all of his very famous cases. I've been interested in true crime, you know, since I was a kid. So I'd read lots of these sorts of books. But this one really you know, went into detail. And there was one case in there, which was, I think, the only one that was sort of unsolved. And it was the case of Joan Woodhouse, who was was a librarian whose body was found in the grounds of Arundel Castle, and you, I could tell from reading it that Keith Simpson felt some sort of discomfort with the fact that the murder wasn't solved. I think he felt that the the suspect was guilty and that the the police may have cocked up in not bringing him to justice. It stuck in my mind, and when the internet sort of first came out, you know, I, I had the thrill of looking stuff up for the first time and. The Joan Woodhouse case came into my head and I googled it and a few things came up. But there was a letter from a lady called Lena Bamber and she was thanking everyone who had thought of Joan or prayed for Joan. So it was an unusual name, Lena Bamber. So I went on to look her up and I found she was alive and well and living in a place called Henor in Derbyshire. And I wrote her a letter. And in this letter, I just said, you know, I thought about writing a book about this case, which wasn't really true. I was just curious, really, who she was and what that what that connection to Joan was. But I had to have a sort of pretense to to contact her. And Lena Bamber was, uh, by then, nearly 90. And, and when I rang her, she said, that I knew you'd contact me. And I said, oh, really? She said, oh, yes. She, she said, Um, I'm getting towards the end of my life now and I've prayed to God that the the Joan Woodhouse case will get solved and God has sent you to me. And I thought, oh, God, you know, I've really got myself in in a pickle here. And I agreed to go up and see her and she was the most charming lady. And you know, she had all her faculties. Very, very devout Christian. And she told me the whole story. And um, I sat there with my wife, sort of transfixed by it all. And then she produced this brown leather attache case and sort of creakily flicked up the two buttons, opened it up. And there was this sort of treasure trove of ephemera around the case, photographs of Joan from her childhood to close to when she died, uh, letters. And, you know, as, as I sort of fingered these letters and looked at them, you know, they were to the most famous people, sort of establishment figures of the era, I said to Lena, look, you know, can I take this away and study it and look at it? And, you know, if I think there's something there, I, maybe I will write a book. And, uh, but, you know, I'm not promising anything. I didn't really want to commit myself at that meeting. But I remember driving down the motorway, going back, and I had this real strong sense a baton had been passed to me.
3: Martin, you went up to Derbyshire to meet Lena, as you just described. What relation was Lena to Joan Woodhouse?
0: They weren't related. They, they were best friends. And they had met in the Second World War, both on some sort of secondment from their normal jobs to, if I remember rightly, to, to sort of pick up engineering skills because the, you know the male workforce was absent on other duty. The, the female workforce was being trained and coached in these areas. And, and they, they became best friends.
3: And with there being no relative as such, why did Lena have all this information what what was the connection there
0: after joan was murdered the the family were very disappointed with the police inability or unwillingness or whatever it was to sort of tie this case up the family waged a a campaign that went on for several years to try and get the case reopened or to try and get some resolution to the case and the key fighters were joan's dad john her aunties and lena and they were the team, and they fought and fought and fought, and, and quite quickly, you know, not too long after Joan died, they began to die one by one, and I think Lena was the last lady standing.
3: And what was Lena's story about what happened?
0: Lena was convinced that the murderer was a local man. This man also had a history of indecent exposure, and John Woodhouse, Lena, the two aunts, were 100% convinced of this man's guilt. Lena felt it, it, that was the miscarriage of justice, that the police had their man, but for some reason couldn't bring that to a conclusion.
3: You've approached this as being an unsolved, unexplained death in your mind at yeah. that time. And as you say, you must have spent a considerable amount of time further research, interviewing people, and then writing your book. Is that the case?
0: Yes, definitely. I mean, obviously the, the first port of call was the suitcase, and from that suitcase, I was able to form a picture in my mind of what happened. I then went to the National Archive in Kew, managed to read much more of, on, from the officialdom side of it, the police side of it. And then you know, I put up a couple of messages on information sites for Arundel on, on Facebook and, and social media and started to meet people locally locally especially older citizens, and, you know, started to get a real feel for the whole case. Uh, And I started to get emails and letters from people as well, but most of them wanted to remain anonymous. Although they, you know, opened up to me about lots of things, no one wanted to be quoted, which was quite frustrating. But, you know, I I, I thought it was so, so long ago, you know, it wouldn't be as acute as it is, but Arundel is a tight-knit community, uh, a happy community. I think people just don't want to rock the boat too much i i remember one of the things i did was i sort of went into pubs and, and sort of sat there and try to get chatting to older drinkers regulars i was in one pub and i got chatting to the the publican or the barman and you know i mentioned it and i said have you, have you heard of this he's oh god of course we've heard of it you know i mean he, he he was i say young he wasn't young but he was a bit younger than me maybe in his 50s he said yeah 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 we know all about it and uh I mentioned the local chap that was in the frame for this, and uh, who, who was dead by then. And I said, do you think he did it? And he said, did he do it? And he and he shouted out to a really old guy at the end of the bar, said, Arthur, did uh, Tom do the murder? And Arthur said, well, if he didn't, I expect Glenn Miller to walk through this door any minute now. you know." And, and that, that was the sort of responses I was getting.
3: So how many years have you been pursuing this cause? Is it since you made first contact with Lena in Derbyshire
0: I started writing books 20 years ago and I think I cottoned on to this in about 2010 the book finally came out in about 2015 I think or 16 so I mean obviously I did other things in between but yeah I was sort of on the case if you like for a good well I mean I suppose I'm still on it now in a way isn't it because things crop up even now so yeah 10 years sadly Lena died She read a first draft of the book, which was a great relief to me. Uh, So she died knowing that this book would come out. Her relatives told me that gave her comfort, which was good. Occasionally, I get letters even now from people in Arundel mainly, or or who had at one time lived in Arundel, saying, you know, has anything more happened? (laughs) I I sort of hoped, I suppose, that my book might raise questions, but, you know, whether the police might do a cold case Inquiry on it, but that hasn't happened.
2: And then, having listened to our podcast, and the name of our podcast being True Crime Investigators UK, you emailed us with some brief details of this case. So, therefore, can we say, whereas you describe Lena passing you a baton? to take forward the case. Can we say that that baton is now being passed to ourselves? I'm
0: I'm afraid that's correct, whether you like (laughs) it or not now. (laughs) Because you'll you'll find it a hard one to walk away from.
3: Having spoken to Martin that the case is very interesting and it's one that we're very keen to get involved in, now we've got some more detail. So what actually do we know about, Joan?
2: Joan was born in 1921 and she was the only child of Nellie and John Woodhouse and they lived in Barnsley and Joan was educated locally and she foresaw a career in librarianship. But her studies were interrupted because of World War II and as we know from Martin, she spent some time working for the war effort in Sheffield and that's where she met Lena Bamber the person who gave Martin the suitcase of documentation. Now, sadly, Joan's mum passed away in 1943, and two of her mum's sisters, Annie and Ida, they'd been widowed, one in the First World War and the other one shortly afterwards. Now, as they were widowed very young and they never remarried, they never had any children, so when Joan came along, she was very much the apple of their eye. What we know from there is after the war, Joan moved to London and after she'd completed her studies, she got a job at the National Library and at that time was part of the British Museum. Now, when she was in London, she was she was in a relationship with another librarian called Ted Roberts and they'd planned to get engaged. However, their relationship ended early in 1948 Now, after the breakdown, Joan suffered a period of, I suppose these days we would call it depression. She resigned from her job and she went to stay with her aunts for some recuperation. But after some weeks, the doctor that was treating her up at Bridlington suggested that she'd be better off to keep herself busy and thought that perhaps a return to work would be beneficial. So Joan asked her employers if she could withdraw her resignation and as a result of that she got a job back and and she went back to work. Now the aunts were quite concerned because she had been very troubled during this time of recuperation that she shouldn't spend any time on her own and previously she'd lived in a flat in Baker Street in London on her own. So the aunts suggested that she live where there were a lot more people around. And as a result of that, firstly, she moved to the YWCA in Ensley Gardens. And then, some weeks later, she moved to the YWCA, the Young Women's Christian Association Hostel in Blackheath in London.
3: And that was quite common at the time. Bearing in mind, it was just just after the war, I presume a combination was scarce because of the damage that was caused. And professional people did live in those types of establishments, didn't they?
2: Yeah, it it wasn't unusual at all. I mean, if there was anything unusual about this, it was the fact that Joan had spread her wings and she'd moved from Barnsley to take up studies and a job in London. That was fairly unusual in, in those days.
3: As far as we're aware, Joan was last seen on saturday the 31st of july in 1948 which was a bank holiday weekend what do we actually know joan's plans were for that weekend
2: well the saturday was actually the 31st of july 1948 and we know from other people at the hostel that she'd said that she intended to go and visit her family so presumably her dad and her aunts and she told Nicole Ashby who was her roommate that she was intending to catch the 1010 train from Kings Cross to Barnsley. In actual fact what she did was she caught the train from Victoria and went down to Worthing so she went in the opposite direction.
3: And what did she tell the hostel of how long she would be away when was she coming back? What they would
2: do, if they needed an evening meal, they would put their names on the board to indicate to the warden that they needed a meal that day. And before she left, Joan put her name on the board for an evening meal on the Tuesday.
3: So at the moment, we've got a confused picture, haven't we, that she told her colleagues at the YWCA that she was going to go north to her family. And then, for reasons unknown, at this time, she ends up in Arundel in West Sussex.
2: Yes. Well, at 12 noon, we've got her at Worthing. And then at 2pm, we've got a scene in Arundel High Street by, by the chemist, Mr Bowles. And because the chemist shop is only a few yards away from where the bus dropped off, the assumption is that she caught the bus from Worthing station to Arundel. Mr Bowles remembers that it was just past two o'clock. At the time, she was wearing a very distinctive paisley dress, blue sandals, blue gloves, and she was also carrying a Macintosh
3: and a coat and a handbag. It was a very hot day, wasn't it? Well, hot weekend at that particular time.
2: It was. It was
3: unusually
2: hot. I know know we, we expect it to be warm in July, August, but... From
3: the reports of the time, it was very, very hot. So having been seen by the chemist, what happens to her then? Do we know?
2: Well, we know that she then moves on to Arundel Square because, again, there's another witness, a a Miss Digby, who's visiting friends and she looks out of her friend's window and she sees somebody fitting Joan's description. Again, she says, very distinctive dress the sandals and the coats that she's she's carrying. So I think we can safely assume that by two o'clock, Joan Woodhouse is in the High Street in Arundel.
3: And so far, she'd made plans to return to the hostel on the Tuesday afternoon, but clearly she, she didn't make that return appointment, did she?
2: Well, she didn't attend work on the Tuesday after the bank holiday, and that's when she was first missed. And by the end of that week, she was reported missing by the warden at the local police station. Now, the family were also informed and they were worried that she'd taken herself off and that she may have even committed suicide as she was still recovering from the depression that had been caused by the split from the boyfriend earlier in the year. Then on Tuesday, the 10th of August, a local labourer, painter, decorator called Thomas Stillwell, he comes across a handbag in Arundel Park. He's walking in the park and he picks this handbag up and has a look through it and it's while he's looking at the handbag that he looks a few yards away and he can see a body. He then goes back into the park, he borrows a bicycle from someone someone that he knows, and he rides to the police station in Arundel Town, reports the matter, and the police go to the scene and so starts the police investigation. So as we know, when you get a report such as this, the first thing to actually do is confirm that it's a body. That they did do. The local doctor comes along and says he thinks she's been dead a few days, and that it's a suspicious death. So what the police did was they circulated the description as much as they had a description of the body, and also the clothing, as we've said, really distinctive dress, these blue sandals, um, the handbag, the coats, all that kind of thing. And as it was, there was a sergeant at Lee Road Police Station, which is the local police station to the YWCA back in Blackheath and he recognised the description as being similar so he suggested that this may be the the body of of Joan Woodhouse and indeed that was found to be the case but obviously the suspicious death triggers the local police to contact New Scotland Yard doesn't it?
3: So at that time in 1948 there was a national scheme throughout the country that where deaths that aren't straightforward if that's the right term they would supply senior CID officers to assist the local police force to investigate that death and in this case that's what triggered that process the Chief Constable of Sussex contacts the Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police they dispatched one of their detectives down to Sussex to advise and help and monitor what the inquiry is going to follow.
2: And in actual fact it was Chief Inspector Fred Narborough who was sent from New Scotland Yard to be the senior investigating officer for the Joan Woodhouse murder inquiry, wasn't it?
3: What would happen is as in this case that would take a little time to get in process so the the body was left overnight at the scene being guarded by the local police until Scotland Yard could arrive the following day and conduct the inquiry from the start, if you like. And, isn't That's
2: it? right. Fred Narborough actually saw Joan's body in situ and it was also seen by Dr Keith Simpson. He was the London pathologist and he said that the body had been dead for about 8 to 10 days and hence the decomposition in the body because they'd had some really heavy rain as well. So although it was warm, you've got the combination of the warmth, the heat, the heavy rain, and also being in a a park area, you've also got the intervention of wildlife and and animals that are around. So once Fred Narborough and Dr Simpson had seen the body in situ, it was then removed so that they could do a post-mortem because the next question is what killed her and it was Dr Simpson who carried out the post-mortem and Fred Narborough and other officers were also in attendance and the conclusions that he came to was that Joan had been strangled, manually strangled. Uh, she'd got bruised muscles on each side of her voice box and there was a fresh fracture to a hyoid bone, uh, and that's a bone in your throat. And she'd also got signs of asphyxia in her lungs and over her heart. The other thing that he found was there was minor bruising over the spine and the hip and also underneath the scalp. So all of those minor bruising are basically on her back. So the conclusion he drew was that she was on her back and being pressed back while she was being manually strangled.
3: And also further investigation showed that she'd actually been raped as well.
2: Yes, Dr Simpson found bruising on her inner thighs, which was sign of a forced sexual act.
3: So in this particular case, when the police attended with the pathologist, it was an unusual scene in that as well as the body they saw to the side, some of Joan's outer clothing had been removed and was folded up neatly stacked as they describe it which was unusual to say the least and that made them think why would the clothes be folded in a, in a stack to the side of the body what has brought events to to that situation and then the fact that subsequently she's been found in the position where she'd been murdered
2: the suggestion is that as the clothes were found as they described neatly folded some yards away from the body that she'd removed them herself or she'd allowed them to be removed. Then the other thing they find in her belongings is a book with a hundred, over a hundred men's names in it.
3: Now, if we were attending that scene, you'd think this lady must have been accompanied by somebody and there's a hundred men's names. So conclusions are drawn initially to steer the investigation into the right direction. And that's what they were faced with on that day, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, the the two things, the the folded clothes and the the book with the hundred names in it, comes up with the suggestion that perhaps she didn't go to Box Cops alone. That's where the body was found, and that she was likely with a male and um, perhaps one of the males out of this book. The other interesting thing is that she had no return rail ticket. So that added to the supposition that she may have been with somebody else and that the person that she was with had retained those tickets, hence the reason she got no return ticket on her. So then the police have to decide what action they're going to take and the action they decide upon which I'm sure if we were looking at this situation would have done exactly the same thing, is basically trace an interview every male whose contact details are in that book. And hats off to them, that did manage to trace all of those members, and it it turned out that that they were all members of a, a student librarian association and Joan had some sort of admin role in that. So there was another reason why she should be in possession of this book with so many men's names in it. Now, the police have a review of the case. Now, as a result of the review of the case, they decided to invite one of the aunts, Ida, and John Woodhouse, Joan's father, down to London. But while Fred Narborough and his officers were talking to Ida and and John, there is what we would refer to as a bit of a eureka moment, something that Ida had said.
3: She discloses the fact that it wasn't uncommon for Joan, when she was sunbathing, to remove a top garment and put them to one side, which is what had happened, or would appear to have happened, at Box Cops. And on that day, as we've heard, it was very hot, and the assumption then's drawn that could Joan have been sunbathing on her own? She's quite isolated, so took her clothing off, or partially a top clothing off, and sunbathed. And that then triggered a different train of thought as to what may have happened to Joan, didn't it?
2: And that is the eureka moment for Fred Narborough because then, I'm not saying the conclusion he comes to, but the suggestion he may come to is, actually, she may have gone to box cops on her own. She may have taken off her own clothing. And so that's a turning point. And then you have to start thinking, if she was there on her own, is this a stranger that's approached her? So then suspicion switches to the finder of the body, Thomas Stillwell. Now, he actually lived in the grounds of Arundel Park with his parents, his brother and his granddad. And the house that they lived in was owned by the Duke of Norfolk. It was part of his estate. And it had got a really strange name. It was called Fox's Oven. Now, the other thing that happened in that September was there was two witnesses that came forward and they reported seeing Stillwell in the park on the 31st of July and speaking to them. And they said they hadn't come forward until the September because they couldn't have been sure about the day, whether it was the Saturday or the Sunday. And the fact that one of the witnesses, Robert Challens, had his daughter with him. And she was catching butterflies in the park. And that happened on the Saturday. So they were fairly sure that this event happened on, on the Saturday. The only thing they couldn't agree about was whether it was morning or, or afternoon. And Stillwell is known to follow girls and women and make unwelcome sexual remarks. And so because of that, he then becomes the prime suspect. And he's spoken to, his family are spoken to, other witnesses are spoken to. The two witnesses that place him in the park on Saturday the 31st of July are really important. But despite all of that, the advice from the lawyers is there's insufficient to arrest Stillwell. And the family can't, can't accept that. So what course of action do they take after that first investigation?
3: Appropriate just to mention that when the police have investigated something, they gain as much evidence as they can and then it's reviewed by certainly a murder case as a lawyer who makes an opinion on whether there's any evidence if it would stand up in court and it would substantiate the arrest of Stillwell and prosecution for murder. That That's basically the process that follow isn't it?
2: I think what we're saying is that the police collect the evidence and then the lawyers decide if the evidence that they have got is admissible in a court and does that look like it would be successful?
3: And at that stage the police must have told the family that although we have tried very hard, we cannot prove or charge Stilwell with Joan's murder at that time.
2: That that's basically what would have happened and Because I think at that point, the family do think that their man is Stillwell and he ought to be brought to justice. So what the family do is they employ a private investigator and he makes his own inquiries. And he subsequently submits a report to the police and there's some criticisms and omissions of of what hasn't been done in that first investigation. And as a result of... Thomas Jack's report, a second investigation, so a re-investigation, is ordered and that's conducted by uh, Superintendent Reginald Spooner. He's also from Scotland Yard. So Scotland Yard are involved in the first and the second investigation. But sadly, Spooner's report comes to the same conclusion with input from lawyers that there's insufficient evidence to take the matter Further forward, so the family are in the same situation that they've now had two police investigations. They think it's still will who's culpable, but nothing's going to happen to him, and he's not going to go through the criminal justice system. so the family take advice from lawyers that they instruct and they decide to seek a private prosecution and basically, this is the situation where. The authorities won't bring Stillwall to justice, so we as the family will. He is arrested because of the private prosecution. He's remanded in custody for a a number of days until his old-style committal in September of 1950. And I can hear everybody shouting, what on earth is an old-style committal? Go on John, explain what an old style committal is.
3: Today we don't have those, do we? They've been suppressed by uh, more modern legislation, but then in 1948 it was for the Crown to prove its case and in serious matters like this they were reviewed by magistrates. So basically there was a
2: It was almost a trial Trial. before a trial, wasn't
3: it? Yes. The old-style committal is the Crown would go before the magistrates and say, this is our evidence, this is what we can prove. And you would hear witnesses. Hear witnesses, give live evidence, and at the end of that, the Crown would say, we have sufficient evidence to take this man to trial at the Crown Court on a charge of murder. The defence would argue against that and say, you haven't proved your case, and the magistrates would decide whether there was or there wasn't sufficient evidence. That's a very sort of basic old-style committal, isn't it? And then it goes to the Crown Court when you hear, if you please not guilty, all the evidence, and the jury decides whether he's guilty or not.
2: But to get to that Crown Court stage, you've got to have the magistrates agree that there's a case to answer to commit it to the Crown Court. And in this case, the five magistrates... That listened to the old style committal decided that there was insufficient evidence, so this has been this is becoming a bit of a, a a theme isn't it that after every stage that that they get to it's not back because there's insufficient evidence, and that must have been so
3: traumatic
2: for for the family and also for friends of joan like
3: like Lena I mean then we're, we're talking of. Two years, aren't we, from Joan being found dead to the committal proceedings. So they've had to live and breathe this matter for two years, all the to and fro and frustrations, and then the real disappointment that, again, the magistrates won't commit to Crown Court, so Silva won't stand trial. I think to progress this matter, what what we need to do is
2: we need to visit the murder scene. We need to see if Martin will meet with us and if we can have a look at that case of documents and do what we always say in every episode, put our feet on the street where it happened.
3: And go and have a look for ourselves.
2: We've got our train tickets booked, so let's, let's go. So here we are on the train. We're gonna travel down to London aren't we and then we change trains and go on to Sorry,
3: yes to meet Martin Knight who's the author of the the book Justice for Joan the Arundel murder
2: and we're hoping that we're going to be able to um, look at the suitcase that he's got with all the documents in aren't
3: we yeah quite excited because it dates back to 1948 uh, when the murder took place and subsequent events thereafter, which we'll discover as we we go, and uh, we're quite excited to see what it actually contains, aren't we? Please mind the gap between the train and the platform.
2: So here we are in the bar of the hotel in Arundel, and we're waiting for Martin to come and join us and come and meet us and
3: hopefully he's bringing the case with him Yes, we've come a long way to have a look at this suitcase, haven't we? And we're quite excited what it contains, so uh, in fact I can see Martin coming across the road to the hotel I'll I'll go and let him in Yeah, go and open the door Hello Martin, how are you? And At last we meet in person We're doing fine And this is the case This is the actual case that we've all been talking about. The magic contents, hopefully. It's a lovely old case, isn't it? It is. It's beautiful. So we'll open up.
0: So I first was presented this by Lena. Yep. Lena Bamber. Back when I first uh, sort of got my teeth into this case. And I remember then it was very stiff to open. So as you can see, it's it's absolutely packed. Um, Let's um, have a quick... It's a mixture of press cuttings, letters, letters mainly written by the Woodhouse family and Lena, to the various levers of power at the time, the Attorney-General, the DPP, the Chief Constables, the MPs, uh, newspaper editors, everything you can think of. So Um,
2: they canvassed pretty much everybody, or anybody who could
0: For a sustained period of time, ten years or so. My God.
3: I'm just having a quick look through and it's just rammed full of papers, isn't it? And I don't think you get any more in. Yeah, what you picked up there is a council's opinion.
0: Yeah. Um, There's lots of sort of religious stuff uh, connected to Joan. Yeah, this is what what you've got here is very touching. This is the family photograph album. Um, Yeah, so this is quite sad if you read this sort of testimonial to Joan. I think the aunts have lovingly put this together.
3: And what's it dated on the front
0: there? Is it? 21. 1921. 1948. So this is, this is done after Jonah died,
3: I suppose. They put so it's like a, a, a family sign. record. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
2: Sorry, that's... and that says, I'll be picture our beloved, yeah. Picture loved. Yeah. Pictured memories and you, you souvenirs.
0: You were so lovely and beautiful in your life, so brave, so unassuming in purpose, and so on. It's you know, quite touching to read it. Yeah.
3: And then, and then
2: the, the last bit. Um, yeah, what does that say? We could not. We could not convey to others Such. even the shadow of what you were. No. And when you left. Took with you the better part of us. Oh, wow. that, is, that is so poignant, isn't it? So it goes from when she was a baby
3: in baby. the pram. I mean, this,
0: this is a pictorial history of her life. God. Uh, in Barnsley.
3: Yeah, in Yorkshire. But I
0: think I think her parents. Her mother died when she was very young. I think she yeah. was eight or something like that. But I think her parents must have been quite well off because there's sort of servant people in here. And Look at that. That's what <laughs> I found. <something>. A <laughs> like, uh, photograph of a uh, studio
4: uh, dr- photographs dr- s- aren't they? Yeah,
2: dressed, uh, dressed a as radder. a
3: bunny. And it just goes on and on. Yeah, stuffed full of old, uh, nicely yeah, how presented. cats. Yeah. yeah. So we'll have a look through all these and.
0: Yeah, I mean... And um, it'll take you a good amount of time. Also in there, buried underneath somewhere, are the biographies of S- Inspector Spooner and Fred Narborough, yeah. who carried out the Scotland Yard investigations.
2: Yeah, yeah. Narborough did the first one, yeah. and then the reinvestigation was... Spooner. Spooner, wasn't it? Yeah. There is there is just so, so much, much yeah. isn't yeah.
3: there? Yeah. Mm. Right, we've just gone past the old gatehouse, which is now a cafe.
0: Swanbourne Lake on Swanbourne
3: our left. Swanbourne Lake on our left. And this is the route that Joan, as far as we're aware, would have taken?
0: I think so, yes, yes. And Yes, I mean, if she walked down Mill Lane, Is the only way in. You
3: know. Yes, I mean, it's a You're massive right. park, isn't it? I mean, must be many, many acres of land. Yeah. And we're going back to 1948. I mean, it's popular today, but it quite secluded, I would think, in 1948.
0: Well, on, on that particular day, because it was so hot, I think there was probably a lot on the day of the murder, I, I think there were quite a few people knocking about, to be honest with you.
3: Yes, could well be. And,
0: and the, yeah, there's quite a few witnesses, one being the boatman, Andre Buller, his name was, on this lake here.
3: Yes, I mean... No, you can no see boats now, but No, 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 no. Uh, you can see that they would be uh, make a lovely boat in the lake and uh, full of birds and wildlife. Yeah. And this path will be here then, I would think, isn't it? It's, oh, definitely, it looks, definitely, yeah? yeah. So from the the gatehouse, now the cafe, yeah. how far is it approximately to where Joan was found? I, I, I think it's about a mile. So she'd walked a Three long way a away. Way. Yeah, she had walked. And then she'd left the track and gone up into where She's we're got, going got to. gone,
0: gone up, up the hill to sunbathe. Uh, that's, a, that's the theory.
3: And that was at Box Cops? Box Cops. I presume Box Cops, because it was box trees? I think so. I yeah, so. it's a fair assumption I would think. As far as we know, she came to Worthing on the train, yeah. a bus to Arundel, right. and then on foot. Yes. the way we've just driven into the yes park where the footpath starts. So
0: the shopkeeper sold her a bottle of limbar, which
3: was a type of lemonade then. But we'll uh, keep walking until we get nearer to where Joan was found. Yeah. So we've just walked
2: up from the gatehouse which is now a cafe and we've kept uh, Swanbourne Lake to our left and we're right now at the very end of it and I'm surprised Martin how dramatic the landscape is because everything around here is quite quite flat and fenland and then Mm. all of a sudden you walk up by the side of Swanbourne Swanbourne Lake Lake, and you've got an incline and then you come into like, this really steep valley, off to your left you've got a really steep wall and we can just see the top of turrets up there. And then you look to your right and you've got another shorter but a steep incline up to what is Box Cops. Yes, Box Cops and my my understanding is Joan's body was found
0: by that tree in front of it. It may, have, you know, This may have looked very different then. I don't know whether that fence was around it in those days, but it was certainly in undergrowth because I can recall the, the pictures of the magistrates and um, they're sort of getting their way through the undergrowth. And I, when I wrote the book, I came here with a couple of friends and we climbed over this fence and we got to that tree and sure enough there's lots of carvings of initials in it which would indicate it was once more exposed and yeah. easily accessible. And uh, in the book, I mentioned that the two aunts that um, campaigned for justice for Joan back in those days went here and made a sort of shrine to Joan. They carved a cross into the tree, and I think they put JW.
2: And just coming here, I don't know what I expected, (coughs) but it's far more isolated, far more rural than I anticipated it would be. And, And when you look up there and you see that tree, and... You see, Box Cops, and that's where it. And it's a lovely place. It's yeah. a it's a beautiful place. You know, today it's a it's a winter's day, but it's yeah. a nice day. The sun's shining. And and this is where it yeah. all ended for us. Yeah. What
3: what strikes me where we stood is that I think Thomas Stillwell, in, in some records we've read, mentions being at that tower, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Now, we're in the valley below and it's very steep slope up to the tower. If you actually stood in the vicinity of that tower, I would suspect that to the right and to the left, you've got a panoramic view of this valley for some distance. Yeah. So if he saw Joan on that day, and we know that he had this uh, behavioural thing where he was... Stalking or chasing and observing young girls and women in this park area, he could see some distance. If anybody else was was on foot coming into the valley, and if the coast was clear, so to speak, yeah. that could be very well when he when he he came down and and spoke to Joan or whatever he was intending doing.
2: Up oh, there is a brilliant vantage point. It is, isn't it?
3: Yeah, and you know if you have got the inclination as Stillwell had. You could easily stalk and intercept anybody you wished.
2: It's what I would call a good hunting ground.
3: We've just gone into sight with Martin at the front of us. This uh, house which was called Fox's Oven, and still called Fox's Oven, and... Coming into view is this isolated, detached cottage in the middle of nowhere.
2: Oh, yeah, you can you can see the Gable End, can't you?
3: Yeah, and this is where the Stilwell family resided at the time of Joan's murder. And it's as isolated as you could become isolated, I think. A lovely little red brick cottage and we're just making our way down on foot and it's a fantastic view across the Duke's land and you can see for miles as we come out of the wood to Lund where we've just walked and there's a plaque on the house the fox's oven and it's changed hands since the Stilwell family had it if you like your own company it's a beautiful place it's... I
2: don't think I've ever come across a house that is so so far away from
3: anywhere else. And you can't hear anything? You can't. So Stilwell's mother worked for the Duke in the ha- the big house?
0: As far as I know, yes. Yes, that's that's what I've been led to believe.
3: And this would be an estate owned... This, this
0: would, would have belonged to the Duke of Norfolk's estate,
3: yeah. And then, for reasons aren 't clear that he parted company with the house, and the Stillwells,
0: as far as we can make out uh Ellen Stillwell uh, ended up owning this according to the land registry records she's recorded as the owner at one point after nineteen fifty and it's in her name only not not the father's name, which I thought was curious
3: but and not the sort of thing dukes do for a living, is it giving away houses or
0: yeah. It's Strange. Maybe, maybe I don't know much about the aristocrats, but. Uh,
2: we don't know about the landed gentry. We don't do know we? much <laughs> about the landed gentry, but I wouldn't have we thought. We have no experience.
0: I've heard stories about them letting people live their lives out. Mm, that's quite common, you know, I think. Which is isn't common, it? common, but to actually transfer ownership mm. uh, is, is curious, isn't it?
3: And how long, can you remember how long did she live? I think she died in 76. So from, say, 1950. 26 yeah. years? Yeah,
0: yeah.
3: Well, Thomas Stilwell, who's the, the prime suspect for Joan's murder, I mean, he would be using the Duke's estate, basically, as uh, as his garden, wouldn't he? He'd be wandering around, getting up to whatever he wanted well,
0: it, if, to. If, if he was born here, I think he was born here. Yeah, As children, he would have played, wouldn't he? With his, there's a few more little cottages down in Offham, which is just round the corner. We
3: saw it on the way up. So from here to... The nearest major town would be Arundel, wouldn't it? Oh, yeah. So, what's you know, that? that, look... that the,
0: walk we, the, the drive we've just done, the whole Stillwell family, you know, they're going into town, would walk that frequently. And, and Tom, Tom was a decorator, a labourer, you know, they would have walked
3: in there all the time. And, and used bikes, uh, bicycles and...
0: Yeah, and then would have gone into town to buy the food. You know, so it's a fair old walk. It's a fair way to keep
3: uh, to and fro-ing, isn't it? It is. It its And, of course, he goes... people
0: People did in those days, didn't they?
3: And, of course, he was going through all the woodland that we've looked at and spying and doing whatever he did on young girls and women as he went. Apparently so, yeah. Well, Sally, we're back home after our trip to West Sussex and it's quite exciting, many of the things we've found and what we've seen, and it all sort of fits into context now, doesn't
1: it?
2: Well, I think that, you know, before we went, it was words on a page, that, the story of, of Joan's murder. But having been to the scene, I'm building a picture in my mind because I know the place now. I've been there, and I think that that's a really important part of getting to grips with with one of these cases. And the thing that struck me about Box Cops was, one, what a beautiful area it is. I mean, it's stunningly beautiful,
3: isn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's magnificent around all the castle, the grounds. And
2: at the same time, go up to Box Cops. I know there's a, there's a fence around it now and we couldn't actually go into Box Cops itself, but we could stood at the side of it and actually just standing there. You do think, why on earth would you come up here?
3: And, you know, when we've looked at Fox's Oven where the Stilwell family lived, again, the remoteness, the, the sort of seclusion they must have sort of lived in.
2: We would never have found that on our own. Never. That's that's how secluded it is. We would never have found that had Martin not taken us to the place where Fox's Oven
3: was. And as the police enquiry shifted from the Black Book to focus on Stilwell... It, you can see that a person with Stilwell's behaviour, he was in his element in that location. You know, the remoteness, the woods, the terrain, the observations he could make from a distance. And it, if you're that way inclined, as, as Stilwell is viewed, it couldn't have been a better place for him to operate, could it? Not at all, no. And
2: I think the the experience of, and I know we keep using this phrase, putting our feet on the street. It gives the case a whole personality. This is where it happened. That is where that happened. And I think that's something that we have to keep doing. One of the other reasons we particularly went to Arundel was to see Martin and see if we could have a look at the contents of the case that Lena Bamba handed to him. And it was really good of him to allow us to bring it home so that we could have a look at it in our own time because there is just such a wealth of information within that case isn't there and in fact you've got the you've got the case there
3: uh, as I speak i'm going to open it it's it's a, obviously in its day a quite an expensive case i thought
2: i i would have thought so but don't you think you know the old battered case with the with the worn out sort of sides there and the worn handle and the initials jt just gives that, like, a connection to the past and to the people from the past.
3: And within it, when you open the, the rusty, a little bit stiff, the, the locks, so they open it and they open it up and in it is literally somebody's life, isn't it? Or family's life, you know, Joan's family's life, her aunt's, all the letters, all the, the books, the newspaper cuttings and really touching is the photograph album isn't it and when we look at it it's been obviously lovingly put together by the family of of what joan's life from being a young well being born to when she actually ceased to exist
2: and yeah i mean we looked at the album when we were with martin and every time i opened those pages it, it just just breaks your heart, doesn't it? And then the letters themselves
3: I mean, they must have been prolific letter writers. Oh, yes. Over many years to, you know, director of public prosecutions, MPs, attorney general, police officers, chief constables.
2: Anybody who'd listen, to other, be honest.
3: Other members of the church, isn't it? They've obviously been corresponding with other senior members of the church pleading basically and, and outlining that an injustice has happened, that the man they believe who'd murdered Joan, Stillwell, has not been prosecuted.
2: And I think to a certain extent we can say that that suitcase holds all the hopes that Joan's family had of bringing Stillwell to justice. It just makes it real and it gives us that connection, you know, I don't have to have known Joan Woodhouse to not feel some kind of feeling or emotion when you look at those photographs and you also look at the letters where her aunts and her father are pleading, please, please do something to to bring some justice for Joan. And thinking about things that have got a connection to the past, you know, you look at how many photographs we've got in our in our dining room mm. and some of those, like from the, the late 19th century, they're people that I don't know, but because I know they are part of my family, that gives me a connection in the same way that looking into that suitcase gives me a connection to Joan and her family. I think what we ought to do, John, is so that people can see some of the contents of this case, that we ought to post some of the photographs and the images that are in, in the suitcase. I think we ought to put it on our website, don't you?
3: Yeah, certainly. And some of the letters, you know, it, it, it's just so powerful, aren't they, that they're they're absolutely at the wit's end the family. You can tell in the way they've written the letters, aren't they, that this, in their view this evil man has been allowed to escape justice.
2: Yeah, so if you'd like to go and and look at some of the contents of the case, then please visit our website, truecrimeinvestigators.co.uk and you can see some of what we have looked at and some of the things that we have referred to. And I think it would be interesting to talk to someone who probably had knowledge of what it must have been like for Lena as a friend of Joan and seeing that justice wasn't served. So we reached out to Liz Willits and and Liz is a member of Lena's family and we contacted her to find out more about what she knew of Lena's thoughts at the time.
4: I'm Liz Willits. I was originally Liz Bamber and I was Lena's niece and her goddaughter. And for a little while in the 1950s, we lived with Auntie Lena and my grandma. And that's when I first became aware of Joan Woodhouse.
2: And Lena spoke to you about Joan, did she?
4: No, not at that time. The reason I became aware of Joan was that there was a picture of Joan in a silver frame, and it was the picture of her wearing a twin set and pearls and looking slightly sideways at the camera and smiling. And it was the first thing you saw when you came in the the main door of the house because it was there in its silver frame on an old oak chest in the hall. And I can remember asking my mum, who's that?, because it wasn't anybody that seemed to have been to the house or wasn't anybody that anybody had spoken about. And my mum said, that's Joan. And sort of, hush, don't ask, you know, don't talk about it. But I persisted and, and said, well, who is she? And my mum very reluctantly said, it's a friend of your auntie Lena's, but she's died. That sort of gave me the signal that I wasn't to ask anymore. And so it wasn't until I was much older that I actually understood that Joan Woodhouse hadn't just died. She'd actually been murdered. But Lena didn't really talk about her very much to me until she was very elderly. She was probably, I guess, in her 80s. And then a whole lot of things fell into place because I remembered the aunts, Nanny and Nida from Bridlington, coming to stay with us when I and the rest of my bit of the family were staying at Derby Road for about 18 months. They were quite frequent visitors. And looking back on it and piecing everything together, I realised that that's the period of time when, Lena and the aunts were working at their hardest to try to get to the bottom of why things had gone so wrong with the investigation.
3: So is it fair to say, Liz, that for the rest of their lives it occupied a lot of their life really, in trying to rally the cause and pursue who the murderer was and get him prosecuted?
4: Absolutely it did. Yes, I think it was it must have been all consuming. For a period of time. It must have been hard work and, and diligent work for all three of them.
2: How did Lena feel about the fact that no one was ever
4: convicted of Joan's murder? Did she talk to you about that? Yes, she did later on in life. Um she was angry and she was disgusted that that nothing had, had come to any sensible conclusion when She felt that it was quite clear in her mind and in the minds of the police who were involved that Thomas Stillwell had done it and that it was just an accident of incompetence, losing the evidence or just not being able to pursue it for a technical reason, had prevented getting justice for Joan. And she thought that was absolutely unspeakable and and unacceptable. I don't think Lena ever felt in any doubt that it was Stillwell from what the police had told her and she felt that the police were equally convinced that that's who it was but they just weren't able to bring it to its proper conclusion and that must be incredibly frustrating to feel that. As you know
3: we've been looking at this case in depth for, for several months and it's quite clear that there are a bunch of very determined people that are doing everything humanly possible to try and come to the correct conclusion that Stillwell, if he had committed the crime, was prosecuted. Even to the extent that they financed a private investigator and a private prosecution. Were you aware or did Lena mention anything about that and the cost of it?
4: Yes, she she did talk about that she didn't talk about the cost but she talked about the fact that they had hired their own legal people to try and pursue it and i guess they just must have financed it themselves in that lena was a teacher and nanny and nida must have been on very small widows pensions from the first world war but i believe they ran a women's clothes shop in bridlington that was quite smart and must have must have brought them some sort of independent income and i guess they just must have spent an awful lot of it
3: yes i mean the enquiries we've made it's you know it's a big undertaking and an expensive undertaking mm. which just shows the determination and all you know we, we raise our hats to them that they've tried everything and gone as far as they could and sadly as we know that didn't succeed and that must have played heavily on all their minds but particularly you know about lena
4: yes at the end of her life i think she was less angry but only because she was consumed with guilt in a way that she hadn't been able to get justice for joan it was a phrase that cropped up quite a lot And I think she felt very bad that she'd let her friend down by not having been able to achieve what they wanted to achieve in getting Stillwell brought to justice. And I mean, she'd absolutely no reason to feel guilty. She'd done everything she humanly could and far more than many people would have done in pursuing it. But it it just hadn't been possible to. Bring a successful case, but I know she felt very, very upset about that at the end of her life.
2: Well, that was really poignant listening to to Liz, wasn't it? And she didn't know Joan herself. She wasn't born when when Joan was friends with Lena, but through this whole case and the fact that Lena had the photograph in pride of place in a hallway that gives Liz some kind of connection to somebody that that she never knew
3: and clearly Lena died at a very old age still wanting justice for Joan and still talking about the injustice as they viewed it and the effect it had on her life and obviously Joan's family and it's so sad isn't it years of trying and and just couldn't get what they wanted. And Liz, equally, you know, she's the same, isn't she? She wants to try and or hope that someday something proves who the murderer was and if the suspect still, well, was the murderer, who has now died, of course. But that lives on in future generations, doesn't it?
2: Yeah. We've already said when we first spoke about this matter, we thought that there wouldn't be anyone around that could give us first-hand knowledge. But I'm pleased to say that we managed to track down somebody who actually knew Joan, and that's her cousin, uh, Ray Pollard. And we talked to Ray about his memories of Joan. So it's it's nice to be able to speak to you, Ray, as you are probably one of a very few people who <laughs> knew Joan. And I understand that your mum... Was Annie Woodhouse and her brother was John Woodhouse. That's right. Yeah. So, so John would have been your uncle, and Joan would have been your cousin. And and how old would you be then?
1: I think I must have been about twelve, thirteen.
2: And and what do you remember of her? To be honest, she was like a bit prim and proper to me at that time. I mean, she was very nice. I must admit. And do you do you remember the time of Joan's death? Oh yes,
0: you remember. I mean, I didn't get to, told very much about it. In the M.D.s, they kept things quiet, you know. I knew she was murdered, but I don't know the rest of the story till that book came out.
2: And and I suppose as a as a youngster, your parents would have would have kept the details away from you.
0: Yes, they didn't talk in the M.D.s.
2: I'm taking from that that it's not a subject that the family ever talked about.
0: But well, not to me, they didn't. It's one of them things. That was a
1: generation, wasn't it? Seen and heard. Yeah, they were like a taboo subject, weren't they? Named these. That's not much I could tell you, really, you know, that age.
3: Well, that's right, but, uh, you know, we, every little bit adds a little bit to the story. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you're the only person we're aware of uh, who is any memory at all of Joan. You know, subsequent families down the line can remember the story, but nobody actually. We've found who's met her.
2: To the rest of us, Joan's, Joan's a photograph.
4: Oh, well, we've got the same photograph.
2: Yeah, and I think that's the outstanding memory of Joan. Everybody that we speak to that, that knows about the case, it, it's that photograph of her yeah. sort of just slightly sideways on, looking into the camera, slight smile on a face that, that is the, uh, the everlasting memory
3: We appreciate all the time and trouble you've taken to speak to us today and we're very grateful at least finding somebody that does remember Joan even though it was a long time ago and we're very grateful for what you've told us today.
1: Thank you. Bye.
2: Well, we're certainly grateful for Ray having talked to us Don't you think that an old case like this seems to adopt a whole personality of its own when you speak to somebody who knew the party, who is affected by the death of Joan?
3: Absolutely. And, you know, raised 90 years of age. And again, interestingly, like Liz said, you know, it wasn't talked about, was it? They didn't talk about them, that type of thing in those days, which is uh, interesting now. It's on Facebook and social media almost immediately, though that was the old way of... Dealing with grief, I suppose. And I can understand the frustration
2: that Lena and Joan's family must have felt because, as you know, in a murder investigation, all the information that the police have got cannot be shared with the family, can it?
3: We've got to go back to the scene of the crime when Fred Narborough turns up, the pathologist turns up and you find the body of Joan... You have no idea what the background, the history is, why she's ended up where she has. As a result of the examination she's determined to have been murdered. You have no idea who's involved in this. Is it a family connection? Is it a friend? You know, initially it was a, a male they suspected. But equally, as we know, from experience, you treat everybody as being I wouldn't say a suspect, but initially with some reservation because you don't know who's involved in this until you get further on in the inquiry. And that, unfortunately, does cause problems with the family because you think that they're not being told the truth, they're not having the information. Things are being kept from from them. them, And it's done with good cause. The person who knows the truth is two people generally, the murder victim, in this case, Joan, and the person who's committed the murder.
2: And there's only one potentially you can talk to once you find Find them. And it's when you catch that potential perpetrator that those details that you've kept back, that's how you assess the truthfulness of the information that they're giving to you. I mean, I can remember a particular murder that I worked on. The perpetrator had attacked the male victim in his own home and battered him to death. And then, you know, we we spoke to the family, but we didn't give them all the information. And some days later, a guy walked into one of the local police stations and confessed to the murder of this man in his own house. And it turns out he was, and, you know, I, I use this word in inverted commas, a hit man, paid for... By the victim's wife and her new lover. So, what a good job we didn't share all of the information with the family because it turned out that the wife was
3: involved. And I remember that case that you were involved in there because she purported to be the grieving widow as she was then, spinning the story that, you know, her husband's been murdered in this brutal way and who would do such a terrible thing to him. When all in all, after the inquiry progressed, she'd instigated it. And of course, she could have easily have changed the story or picked up information if the police had given more information. So it goes back to the same thing, isn't it? You're very guarded on what you say until the inquiry is taking a a line where you could be a bit more open, possibly.
2: Yeah. So in those first days, weeks,
3: months
2: of an inquiry, you've got to keep your cards close to your chest because you may not think that it's somebody that you've spoken to in the course of the inquiry that was involved in it. But actually, when you get towards the end of the investigation, you actually find out that they're implicated in quite a major way. And you're glad you didn't have those in-depth conversations with them right at the very beginning. So then if we look at what we've got so far John, we had Narborough's first investigation. Then we had Thomas Jack's, the private investigator's investigation. Then we have the reinvestigation by Reginald Spooner. And the lawyer's advice to the police is there's insufficient evidence to go ahead with any action against Thomas Stillwell. At the same time, the family's lawyers are saying, still wills the man and he ought to be processed through the criminal justice system. The family's decision at that time was actually, if the authorities won't take action, then we as a family will. And that's when they pursued the private prosecution. So a private prosecution is rare by its very nature and it's incredibly expensive. I think it would be handy to talk to a lawyer who can give us a little bit more information about a private prosecution. And I think the listeners will recall from the Operation Julie episodes, we spoke to a very talented former barrister, Stephen Bentley, and we got back in touch with him to discuss what's involved. Well, thanks for joining us today, uh, Stephen, from your home out there in the Philippines. And we appreciate your expertise as a former police officer and barrister. And the question that probably our listeners want the answer to is, what is a private prosecution?
5: Yeah, I mean, thanks for the welcome and I'm glad to join you again. And uh, just before I go any further and answer the question, can I just make sure that the listeners know that, yes, I am a former barrister. I no longer practice uh, criminal law, and I no longer I hold myself as as a barrister. Anyway, having said that, that's one of the legal provisos of the world. I'll answer the question. And uh, first of all, a private prosecution is essentially it's a prosecution brought uh, by uh, private persons other than uh, you know a state body such as the Crown Prosecution Service. And anyone, any individual or any company can bring a a private prosecution.
2: I think it's fair to say that before 1985, when the CPS came into existence, private prosecutions were very rare. And that's still the case, isn't it?
5: Yes, it is. Even with the enactment of the legislation in 1985 were... Private prosecutions were recognised officially or in law. Really, since 1985, it's only really some high-profile cases that have hit the news that have brought private prosecutions into the spotlight again, cases such as uh, the Stephen Lawrence case, sad murder of uh, of the young man at the bus stop in South London back in 1993.
2: And just going back to the Joan Woodhouse case, We're talking about 1950, when this private prosecution was bought. To bring it to court, that's got to be an expensive thing to do, hasn't it?
5: Oh, certainly. Uh, I mean, bearing in mind, you're talking about 1950, so even several hundred pounds or a thousand pounds or 1,500 pounds or whatever was one whole lot of money back then. And uh, nowadays, you can multiply that by a factor of, three or four is my guess uh, to bring a, a private prosecution so uh, in this day and age so it, it's certainly not cheap it's not a cheap remedy it, you know it, it's, it costs a lot of money so in terms of um, encouragement or discouragement from private prosecutions if the evidence is there uh, you know any any right thinking person would think well why not let the uh, the state body, the state prosecuting body, such as the Crown Prosecution Service, you know, use their resources to bring the prosecution. So I think that's the nub of it all,
3: really. So in this case, as we know, sadly, it didn't succeed. Even to this day, the offender for the murder hasn't been prosecuted, although we suspect that uh, Thomas Stillwell is quite clearly highlighted by the police investigation as being the suspect and you know that's where we are today sadly and but the family it must have been a very traumatic experience for them to go through and then at the end of the day to get no further forward than when they started really.
5: In that particular scenario I I think the phrase um, the family wanting their day in court uh, comes to mind and I can totally understand that and sympathize and empathize with it.
3: Stephen makes an interesting point that to have your day in court as a a member of the victim's family that's we hear that so many times don't we Sally that they want to get somebody before a court and even if they do get off for whatever reasons at least they've got that satisfaction that it's been taken that far the jury's heard the evidence before the court and you know in some cases that they don't succeed but it the family do appreciate the fact that we've tried it's gone before the process of the of the courts and it's not worked but what else could anybody do and i think it's that final bit that gives them I th- satisfaction i think what you're saying john
2: is the fact that families and, and friends see a person being brought to court it's not just justice is
3: it it's it's also a point of closure it brings us back to our one of our previous podcasts, doesn't it, about the murder of Michael Pritchard, and we interviewed his wife, Hillary, and you know the Pritchard case—he was run over by his own van and murdered, and the culprits were never caught, and to this very day haven't been caught, and Hillary hasn't moved on for the pure fact that there's no closure. Nobody was caught. Nobody went before a criminal court, even if eventually they got off. I'm sure she would have been in a better place.
2: And when I think about the words that Hillary used, she said, this feeling never goes away. And that's a pretty powerful statement to come out with, isn't it?
3: And also in Joan's case, we now know from the people we've spoke to that people who weren't born at the time of Joan's murder, but family connections and family members, are still feeling that, aren't they? It's something that's never been resolved. Well, the last thing was the private prosecution, which we've just
2: heard about. It's the magistrate's decision. Is there sufficient to take Stillwell to trial? The magistrates decide, no, there isn't. So Stillwell walks away a free man. So in this case, no justice, no closure. No.
3: And of course, we also mustn't forget that at that time, it was a capital offence murder. So, whoever was charged with murder potentially would be would hunted. be
2: hanged, yeah.
3: And there's no going back, you know. If there's if there's mistakes been made, so the courts and the and the legal advice, I'm sure, will be very cautious to make sure that whoever they charge is correctly charged.
2: Having read Martin's book, there's so many unanswered questions, isn't there? Why did Joan go south instead of north, and what were the reasons? Why Arundel?
3: Why box cops?
2: Why box cops? Why the park so far out of town? And what is this failed police investigation? If you listen to both Martin and Liz, they talk about this failed police investigation. Certainly, Lena thought that they'd failed. And that's a big question that our listeners must be asking. What went wrong?
3: And I think, There's only one way to find that out or try and find it out, isn't it?
2: Yeah, well, if you think that Martin asked us to look at this case again, and if you recall, he said he felt when he was driving back home down the motorway that Lena had passed on a baton to him. As he said to us earlier, he feels that he's now passed that baton on to us. So it's kind of unfinished business and... And I'd be interested in reading that book that Martin mentioned, The 40 Years of Murder.
3: Absolutely. I mean, there's areas to cover that haven't been we haven't looked at. And I think we've reached a point where we've got the background, we've got information that other people have supplied. And I think we start and look for ourselves and, and make our own assessment of it.
2: Yeah, I mean, there is so many questions. But I think, John, we'll have to leave that till the next episode in two weeks' time. Thank you everybody so much for listening and if you're not subscribed now it'd be a really good time to do so and then you can follow the rest of this investigation and our future investigations. Before we go we'd like to let you know that we're back at CrimeCon this year and that's the world's number one true crime event happening in London on Saturday the 11th and Sunday the 12th of June. And it's also worth mentioning that launching in Glasgow is CrimeCon Scotland. That's going to be a one-day event, isn't it, John, on Saturday, the 10th of September. And we're also attending. And we are going to to both events. So going to those events, you can actually get into the mind of serial killers and psychopaths. You can learn about your leading criminologists and you can hear from families and also survivors and meet your favourite true crime podcasters like us. Yes. It's just one of those opportunities to immerse yourself in forensic science and delve into crimes, some solved, some not solved. CrimeCon's the ultimate true crime weekend partnered by CBS Reality. They're the expert-led true crime TV channel. If you're interested and you'd like to find out more, then get your tickets at crimecon.co.uk and when purchasing your tickets, use the code INVESTIGATORS to get your 10% ticket discount. As for us, you can get our full case notes for the Joan Woodhouse murder on our own website, truecrimeinvestigators.co.uk. So join us again in two weeks' time for our final look at this case as we come up with our conclusions.
1: Thank you for taking the time to listen to the True Crime Investigators UK podcast. This show was researched, produced and presented by John and Sally. The narrator was Angela Ness. It was edited and produced for Cornucopia Radio by Peter Beeston. You can find out more information and case notes about the murder of Joan Woodhouse by visiting our website at truecrimeinvestigators.co.uk. On the website, you'll also be able to send us messages, discover subscription links for all podcast platforms, and follow us on all our social media accounts. Make sure you're subscribed to this feed so you can automatically get new regular episodes as soon as we release them. And also, if you enjoy this series, we'd really appreciate you leaving a review or star rating in your favourite podcast application. Your support will help us grow and expand our true crime investigations even further. Thank you.